As we continue to follow Matthew's narrative, we note uh, we're, we're seeing, I hope that you're seeing, an increase in the level of the Pharisees' rejection of Jesus. For the first ten chapters or so, everything was hunky-dory. Uh, we don't, Matthew hasn't really documented a whole a lot of, a, of a opposition, but we, we know that it's there, but it's kind of under the surface. But really, as we hit chapter 11, we begin to see Matthew's um, documenting of this increased opposition. As we know, this rejection will ultimately come to a head at Pilate's Hall when uh, the religious leaders uh, stir up the crowd and they shout, crucify him when they shout for the release of a murderer and the crucifixion of the innocent Jesus. In this passage, particularly we have in in front of us this morning, we will see how the words of verse 14 come to fruition. You remember in verse 14, we looked at it last week. It says that they began to look for ways to destroy Him. The Pharisees went out and conspired against Him how to destroy Him. And what we see in our passage this morning is that plan beginning to take shape. A man is brought to Jesus. He's blind. He's mute. And he's oppressed by demons. And Matthew really just sums up the entire episode with the words, and he healed him in verse 22. Really, not a lot of attention given to the actual healing or to the man himself. And if you read in the other Gospel accounts, we don't see a whole lot more detail added, but what is uh, focused is the response to this. It's likely and very probable that more went on here in this story than what Matthew or Mark or Luke tell us about, because verse 23 says that the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? So clearly the crowd is impressed by what they've just witnessed. And they begin to wonder if Jesus really could be the Messiah. Now, we have a few other accounts in Scripture of people other than Jesus or the apostles casting out demons. Verse 27 even references that, uh, that the fact that Jesus isn't the only one involved in the business of demon dispossession or exorcism. In fact, some historians even say that this uh, was, a, was a pretty profitable business during the time, whether uh, it was successful or not, I, I'm, that's not what we're going to focus on. But Jesus had to have done something in this particular uh, instance to uh, speak to the onlookers in such a way that they felt it was different than anything else that they'd ever seen before. Maybe it was the authority by which Jesus spoke to the demons and cast them out. Maybe it was the instant and complete healing that the man received from Jesus. But whatever it was, uh, the crowds uh, began to wonder and even kind of question among themselves, could this be the son of David? Could this be the promised one who was, uh, who was foretold would come to be the king of Israel? Now, I want you to take note there as we look at that verse that there's nothing said here of anything, uh, anyone actually believing in Jesus. We don't see any, any, uh, uh, anything that leads us to believe that, that th- these people are, are, are coming to Jesus by faith and trusting in Him as the Messiah. It's really just a question in their hearts and on their lips. In fact, the way that the question is formed, it kind of implies that there's more doubt going on here than faith. It's an implied no. Like, 
this can't be the son of David, can it? I mean, this isn't what he would have looked like, is it? This is not, this is Clark Kent. Biological sons, Superman. but they're, 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 they're followers. This is really, it could no, be their sons. It can't be, can it? They don't but want to attack least... or accuse. They're considering it. No, but nobody here is recorded to have recognized the deity of Jesus or believed in him as the Messiah, but these people at least are giving it consideration. It's not off the table. They, they've got it still there, and they're trying to decide. They're trying to, uh, to, to make some kind of a, of, a, of a decision about it. But the Pharisees, on the other hand, are quite different. They hear the crowds, and they come out in open hostility to Jesus. Their answer to the question on everyone's lips is a resounding no. But their resistance to Jesus escalates from simple rejection to open and active opposition. They say in verse 24, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, they're not denying the fact that Jesus actually cast out a demon here. What they're doing is they are attributing that power, that healing power, to Satan. And recognize the Pharisees aren't accusing Jesus to His face. They're not saying this, uh, uh, boldly announcing this, uh, pointing at Jesus and, and, and saying it so that Jesus hears them. They're saying these things to themselves. Probably whispering them to the crowd. They hear the wondering whispers of, can this be the son of David? And they say, no, 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 he's doing this by the prince of Beelzebul. Because 25 tells us there that Jesus responded to them, and the bulk of our passage is Jesus' response as a result of knowing their thoughts. The reason that we have these next several verses is because although Jesus may not have heard the Pharisees' words, He knew their thoughts. And in these verses, we find a logical response to an illogical an inconsistent accusation from the Pharisees. And as we will see here, Jesus' response leads up to very severe consequence for the actions of the Pharisees. First of all, notice Jesus says that He is not with Satan. He is against Him. And He explains it two ways. One with a kingdom and one with a house. If you look at verse 25. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. It's really, it's really just very logical. It's, it, there's nothing deep in these statements that he makes, and yet very profound in, uh, in the truths that he will, he will use them to, to deliver. So first, Jesus establishes the fact that internal division does not lead to success. A kingdom divided against itself is destroyed. It comes to ruin. And he goes on in verse 26 to say that if Satan casts out Satan, then he's divided against himself. How then is, will his kingdom stand? If Satan is empowering Jesus to oppose him by casting out his own demons, it doesn't make any sense. And how is Satan's kingdom going to stand if he is shooting himself in the foot? If you, if you prefer to use it that way. Satan would be divided against himself, and therefore his kingdom would come to ruin. But then Jesus asks in verse 27, he says, well, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons 
cast them out. If the reason that Jesus has authority to cast out demons is because Satan is giving it to him or empowering him, then Jesus wants the Pharisees to determine how other people do it. How are they able to do the same thing? By whose authority do your sons exercise demons? And here the Pharisees have to be careful. Because if they answer, well, they also do it by Satan, to be consistent with their accusation, then they would be attacking and accusing their own sons, or really, it's, 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 I think it's referring to their disciples, not their biological sons, but their, 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 their followers. It could be their sons. But they don't want to attack or accuse their sons. But if they say, well, they do it by God's authority, then, then they would kind of admit that there's an inconsistency in their accusations. They're baseless. So the Pharisees really can't answer Jesus' question here. It's happened a couple of times throughout the Gospels we read where, where they, they, they say, well, well, Jesus, here's a question. He says, well, okay, well, I'll answer your question, but you answer this question. And they couldn't answer his question, so he says, well, I'm not going to answer your question. That's kind of what he's doing here. Because if they hold their own disciples to the same standard that they're holding Jesus to, then they will either accuse their own or have no reason to accuse Jesus at all. And that's why Jesus says at the end of verse 27, therefore, they will be your judges. And he continues, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If Jesus is empowered by Satan, then Satan's kingdom is destroyed from within. That doesn't make sense. But if Jesus is empowered by God, acting in the power of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus says the kingdom of God has come upon you, attacking Satan's kingdom from without. John Calvin wrote about this. He said, Jesus proves that the scribes could not blame him for casting out devils without opposing the kingdom of God. He's caught them in their, in their words. But they've tried to catch him, and, they, he, and he's turned it on them. And it would seem that both they, those Pharisees and the crowd who is listening would begin to wonder at this point, who are they really opposing? The Pharisees have come out in open opposition against Jesus, and, and after hearing these words, this, this rational, logical uh, response to their accusation, it causes them to wonder, I think, who are these guys really opposing? Are they opposing Satan? Are they opposing this man, Jesus, or God himself? Secondly, Jesus uses another illustration to show that he is stronger than Satan. Not only is he not with Satan, but against him, he is stronger than Satan. And he switches the illustration from a kingdom to a house. And instead of the fighting coming from within, the division from within, we see, uh, and because it yields nothing but disaster, we see that there's opposition coming from the outside. Someone on the outside of the house is trying to get inside of the house. Look in verse 29. How or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. It's real simple. You can't break into a strong man's house and rob him. If you don't believe me, try it sometime. Tell me how that goes. Jesus explains you have to first restrain him. You have to tie him up. You have to bind him. And then you can take what you want. 
Because a strong man isn't just going to let you come in and take what he likes and takes what he, take what he pleases. You have to restrain him before you can do anything about it. But once the strong man is tied up, you can plunder his house and take whatever you want. And since Jesus has shown by his casting out of the demon that he can effectively enter Satan's house and do as he pleases, then it follows that he must have bound him up. In other words, Jesus must be greater than Satan because he has bound Satan. And because he has bound Satan, he is able to walk into his house and plunder it and take from him whatever or whomever he chooses. And at this point in the response, Jesus now turns the tables on the Pharisees and he goes on the offensive. Instead of just responding to their accusations now, he has a few remarks of his own. Now we find that the accusers become the accused. Jesus says there that whoever is not with him is against him. He says it exactly like that in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. If you're not helping Jesus, you're opposing him. If you're not working with him, you're working against him. You're either gathering with him or scattering from him. There's no neutrality with Jesus. There's no Switzerland, if you will. You're either on one side or the other. There's no third option here. And the Pharisees have clearly positioned themselves against Jesus by accusing him of acting in the power of Satan rather than the Holy Spirit. Now remember, Matthew is putting these events together to teach us something, to lead us to a truth. He recently has showed his readers in verse 18 that Jesus does, in fact, act in the power of the Spirit of God. We saw that last week. In the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, verse 18 says, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. So by accusing Jesus of acting in the power of Beelzebul or Satan, the Pharisees are positioning themselves against Jesus. And I think the Pharisees knew this much. I think that's what they intended to do. We're not with him. Look at what he does. Because they don't want to align with Satan, and so you, you cast your enemy in the, in the worst light you can, and that's what they've done. They're not in support of Jesus. They resent his teaching. They dislike his miracles, and they, they're threatened by the growing number of followers that he gathers to himself. But in their opposition to Jesus and their accusations of him acting in the power of Satan, they cross a line. They cross a line that they can never cross back over. What we see here is that what they've done is unforgivable. One of the greatest attributes about God is His incredible mercy. Psalm 86.5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 103 says that the Lord forgives all our iniquities. The prophet Micah wrote in chapter 7, verse 18, Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of His heritage? He does not retain His anger forever because He delights 
in mercy. It's one of the, 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 the wonderful things about our God is that he is a good and gracious and merciful God, willing to forgive even the vilest of sinners. But here Jesus reveals that there is one sin that God will not forgive. It is unforgivable. That sin is blaspheming God's Holy Spirit. Look at verse 31. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. See, every sin that man commits, that a person commits, God is willing to forgive, except one. This sin is sometimes called the unpardonable sin or the unforgivable sin. Sometimes, if you, if you were to just take a, a little survey of what is the unpardonable sin, if you just ask someone who is faintly familiar with the Scriptures, you ask them, what's the unpardonable sin? They, they probably are at least familiar with the term, and they might come up with a, a, a variety of different uh, answers to that. Some would say well, it's, it's some kind of a sexual sin. It's, it's adultery. It is uh, uh, something, something of that immoral uh, nature that uh, man certainly, I, can't, I couldn't forgive that person for what they've done or, or, or they can't forgive me or, or whatever. And that's the impardonable sin. Some people say it's, uh, it's committing murder. Killing a person is the unpardonable sin. Some will say it's, it's suicide. Killing your own self. God will not forgive that. If you take the life of another person, or if you take the life of yourself, that's unforgivable. But that's not what Jesus says. What does Jesus say is the unforgivable sin? Jesus says that the unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God. Well, what is blaspheming the Holy Spirit of God? He explains it in the next verse. In verse 32, he says that it's speaking against the Spirit. He even says that if you blaspheme or speak against the Son of Man, it's his favorite term uh, to describe himself as the Messiah, he says even if you, you, you blaspheme the Son of Man, you're forg- you can be forgiven of that. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. Not today, not in the future, not now, not ever, never forgiven. And that's what I believe the Pharisees have done. They've spoken against the Holy Spirit by attributing Jesus' power to Satan. In, Mark, uh, in Mark's uh, account of this story, it's Mark ver- uh, chapter 3 and verse 30, he adds one little phrase that I find helpful in understanding why Jesus responds this way. And Mark 3.30 says this, For they were saying, He has an unclean spirit. That's how Mark kind of explains why Jesus says this at this point because they were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit. He had a spirit. He had God's spirit. But the Pharisees were saying he has an unclean spirit, a demon. So essentially, the Pharisees see the divine power of the Holy Spirit within Jesus, but they identify it as satanic. This is the unforgivable sin. These men weren't ignorantly blaspheming Jesus. They they knew what they were doing. They simply weren't opposing him because of their unbelief. Because if that was the case, they could find forgiveness. Blasphemy in ignorance, blasphemy in unbelief is forgivable. 
We find that with the Apostle Paul. Before he was converted, uh, his name was Saul, and he was a blasphemer. He was an enemy of Christ. He zealously persecuted the church. But he wrote in 1 Timothy 1.13 of himself, he said, Formerly, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly and in unbelief. If the Pharisees' sin had been done through ignorance or unbelief, they too could find forgiveness. But their sin was not because they did not believe or simply because they did not know. Rather, I think they knew exactly what they were doing, not only in rejecting Christ, but seeing in Him divine power and willfully attributing it to Satan. A Dutch theologian named G.C. Burkauer called this a a conscious disputing of the indisputable. D.A. Carson wrote that this is rejection of the truth in full assurance that this is exactly what they're doing. They know what they're doing and doing it anyway. It's a fairly common thing for people, even Christians, to wonder as we bring up the topic of the unpardonable sin. Maybe you've wondered at some point in your life, have I ever committed the unpardonable sin? Have I ever uh, blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? I remember being uh, scared to death in a Bible class in high school by being told that uh, it'd be basically taking the Holy Spirit's name in vain. And that when, when we curse, you know, if you hear someone curse, and not that when we curse, but when you hear someone curse, you, they say Jesus' name in vain, or they take God's name in vain, but nobody ever curses the Holy Spirit. And if you do, then that's the unpardonable sin. And, you know, I'm a teenager, and I'm, I'm kind of scared, but I'm also like, what would happen, you know, if, if someone said it? Like, you know, would there be... The lights would dim and the thunder would roll and then everyone would know he committed the unpardonable. How, how, does that, how does this work? And I was scared to do it, but at the same time, I wanted someone else to do it so I could see what would happen You know, when, when they did that. I don't think that's what it means, though. It's fairly common for people to wonder, especially people who are not super familiar with the Scriptures. But I think it's safe to say that if someone is concerned about ever having committed this sin, that they haven't. Because nobody accidentally blasphemes the Spirit of God. It's not what they're doing. This is an intentional, conscious rejection of the work of the Spirit of God. I believe that people in this story had witnessed the divine nature of Jesus and the Holy Spirit's power working through Him. That's why at times He would do things and they would be amazed. They would say, what manner of man is this? Even the wind and the seas obey Him. He speaks with authority that nobody has has, has done before. And and that's why they begin to think, could this be the son of David? But there are those who do not wonder if He could be the Messiah. They reject the thought. And these Pharisees attacked that thought and credited Satan with the work. And if we keep reading, we see why they responded this way. Because their hearts were evil. Look at verse 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. 
The reason that the men spoke this way against the Holy Spirit is that their hearts were evil. This is why Jesus spoke so strongly to them. Not because of the, necessarily of the words that they spoke, because he didn't, doesn't say he heard their words, he knew their thoughts. He knew what was in their heart. And Jesus says that the condition of the heart, or the tree, determines what kind of fruit will come from it. Make the tree good, you'll have good fruit. Make the tree bad, you'll have bad fruit. Conversely, the fruit reveals the condition of the tree. If you want to know uh, something about the tree, then look at its fruit. If it's making apples, it must be an apple tree. And if it's making pears, it must not be an apple tree. We look at the fruit to determine the type of tree. The tree is known by its fruit. Words are the fruit of the heart. And they reveal the condition of the heart as well as the contents of the heart. What's in the heart. And that's what Jesus is saying in verse 34 there. You you can't speak good because you're evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I like how the, the New American Standard says, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. So, if you have a good heart, what comes out will be good words. But if you have an evil heart, evil words are going to come out. Our hearts treasure up either good or evil depending on what kind of heart they are. And eventually, that treasure comes out in what we say. And notice that he says at the end here that we will be judged by what we say. We'll be held accountable one day for the words that we speak. Look at verse 36, please. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There's so much going on in this passage. I wish that, as I said, we could just take uh, an indefinite amount of time and just come back and, and talk about this and work our way through this because there's a lot more questions than we have answers. But let me just make three applications here in the time that we have left. Number one is that words matter. Our words matter. They mean something. What you and I say means something. It actually matters. Our words reveal what's inside our heart. Sometimes people will lose their temper and they'll say things. And then they'll quickly realize that they shouldn't have said those things. And they usually follow up with, I didn't mean that. But if my words reflect what's in my heart, I did mean that. I know I shouldn't have said that. But I only speak of what's in my heart. Words matter. Words matter when we speak them to other people. Words matter because God hears every word. And it seems that He is keeping track of the words that we speak. Every person will give account for every careless word they speak. By your words you are justified or by your words you're condemned because words mean something. If they don't mean anything to you, then at least note that they mean something to God. Number two, thoughts matter. 
Just because you didn't say it doesn't mean it doesn't count. Thoughts matter. Just because you didn't actually put it into words, you didn't verbalize it, doesn't mean it's a secret. No one else might know what's in the heart, but God does. Because Jesus knows thoughts. God knows what we say and what we think. And let's be honest. We've all said things that we shouldn't say. We've all thought things that we shouldn't think. We have prideful thoughts. We have thoughts that are arrogant and thoughts that are uh, unkind and thoughts that promote ourselves and, 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 and in our minds at least uh, demote other people. We have thoughts of greed, selfishness, all kinds of thoughts run through our minds each and every day. It's the beginning of a new week. And many of us, if not all of us, have had some kind of a struggle with an impure thought, an unholy thought, an ungodly word spoken. We're sinners. It's who we are. None of us are exempt from sinful thoughts. And God knows every single one of them. But that leads me to number three. Words matter. Thoughts matter. But number three, there is only one unforgivable sin. There is only one unforgivable sin. That means that God is willing to forgive every other sin that you and I commit. If you're here today and you have never turned to Christ for salvation, that means that you've never come to Him by faith with a heart that is repentant and humble and and recognizes that you're a sinner and you acknowledge that you have had unholy thoughts and you do say the wrong things. And and more than that, sometimes and oftentimes we do the wrong things. If if you're there and and you realize I'm that type of a person, but then you realize and you know that, that Christ paid the debt for those sins for all who will believe in His name. They know that His sacrificial death and His resurrection is enough to forgive your sin and pay your debt. Every single one. And if you're willing to turn to Him, and if you're, and if you're uh, at that point where you recognize, I am a sinner, but He is the sin taker. He is the Savior. And if I turn to Him by faith and repent of my sins, I can be forgiven because there's only one sin that is unforgivable. And those who turn to Christ haven't committed that sin. You can be saved today. If you have never come to Christ for salvation, today can be the day where you turn to Him and say, Jesus, forgive my sin. Take away the blame. Take away the guilt. Take away the condemnation of my sin. I want to be forgiven. I want to be saved. If you're a Christian, you've done that before. Maybe for some of us it's been years since we heard the good news of the Gospel and we turned to Christ. I don't have to remind you that our actions don't always reflect the heart of a, new, of a believer. Tim mentioned this morning and before praying, we often do things that we know we shouldn't do. We say things we know we shouldn't say. That's why it's important we come to the Lord in confession of those sins. Because 
the Holy Spirit comes within us and He, and he begins making us new, but we still deal with sin. Often our hearts, our thoughts and our words, I'm sorry, don't reflect the heart of a follower of Jesus. We condemn ourselves sometimes and I can't believe a Christian would think that. I can't believe a Christian would say that. We've been forgiven from the penalty of sin and we've been freed from the power of sin, just not freed from the presence of sin and we still deal with sin on a daily basis. Therefore, we need to regularly come to God Confess those sins. Father, I, I know the change that you did in me. I know what you've done in my life and in my heart, but I also know that I still deal with sin. Just as bad and maybe worse than I did before. I know it's a process of sanctification. I know that I still yield to my flesh. Father, I need you to work in me. I need you to... to, to, to to change my thoughts. I need your grace to help my thoughts and my words and my actions to reflect the new creation that you've made me. I don't, I don't want the thoughts and the, and, the, and the words and the actions to be that of the old man. They need to be the new creation that you've made in me. And through regular confession and repentance, I show that there's something else in my heart besides sin. Before Christ, we were just, we were just full of sin. But when we come to Christ, He indwells us. The Spirit indwells us. And now there's something else in there besides sin. There's a desire now to be right with God and to please Him and to be cleansed and renewed by the Spirit. Knowing that every sin but one is forgivable and forgiven for the Christian, we can and should live in the confidence an awareness of being forgiven. God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. That's a good thing. That's why at the end of the song we sang, my sin, oh the bliss. Think about it, my sin, the bliss. He can't even finish the statement without saying the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. And he breaks in a praise, praise the Lord. In knowing he's been forgiven, it, 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 it responds with praise. There's freedom in forgiveness. There's joy in forgiveness. Let us regularly confess our sin to God. Let us regularly remind ourselves that in Christ, we are forgiven. Let's go through life forgiving because we've been forgiven. We look around sometimes at people who have committed sin that we recognize as wrong. And we condemn that sin, but then sometimes we act as if they will never be forgiven of that sin. But when we look at the Scriptures, there's only one sin that God won't forgive. We can boil it all down to rejecting Him. But that means that everything else, God can forgive. Let us live in the conscious awareness that not only have we been forgiven of all the sin, others can be forgiven too, no matter how great their sin. It might be bigger than yours, it might be grosser than yours, it might be more extensive than yours or mine, but it can be 
forgiven in the very same way you or I found forgiveness, by humbly coming to Christ, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So as we go through life, as we go through our week, let's make confession a regular practice. Let's remind ourselves often we're forgiven. And then go with the, with the words of Psalm 19 on our lips. Psalm 19, 14, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Why? Because words matter. Because thoughts matter. Because there's only one unforgivable sin.